Today on Golden Girls Sports, we punch our tickets to some big-time sports venues either referenced or maybe visited by the Golden Girls. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead! The chicken! The Housekeeper premiered on October 17th, 1987, the fourth episode of the show's third season. It was written by Winifred Hervey Stallworth and directed by Terry Hughes. The girls hire a housekeeper to take care of things around the place. But she doesn't work out, or work much at all, and they quickly decide to fire her. Upon leaving, Marguerite tells them they've made a big mistake. That's when the weird stuff happens. Their kitchen faucet explodes, Rose hurts her hand, and Blanche's boyfriend dumps her. They wonder if the Caribbean-born Marguerite has put a voodoo curse on them. While out on the lanai, something else comes for them. First, it's softballs from some neighborhood kids. Then it's a man, dressed as a bird, and using a parachute. This is a visual gag, so just bear with me. First of all, there is no such thing as a curse. No, all right, we've had a little bad luck, but ladies, I mean, that's life. I mean, when you look at it, has anything that out of the ordinary really happened? This isn't the Orange Bowl, is it? (laughs) Just as quickly as they fired her, the girls decide to hire Marguerite back, showering her with roses, a tiara, and champagne in the hopes of getting the curse lifted. Turns out it wasn't a curse, just a bunch of coincidences. And although she appreciates being hired back, Marguerite turns down the job because she's going to law school at night. Sadly, no one knows what happened to the parachute man. A storyline about three white ladies thinking a black housekeeper has put a voodoo curse on them is questionable. The original idea for the story came from a meeting of all the show's writers, but it was Winifred Hervey Stallworth, the only black writer on staff, who fleshed out and finished the script. And according to Hervey herself, it was the ending that saved it. Quote, I remember feeling wary about that one. It was a hard script to write because it was a black woman as the housekeeper. There hadn't been that many black characters, and this one had put a voodoo curse on them. So I came up with a solution. We should find out she's going to law school. And the producers were fine with that being how we redeemed the character. They were always receptive of that kind of stuff because they never wanted to offend anybody. End quote. Hervey is a television legend herself, having written scripts from Work and Mindy and The New Odd Couple before joining Wit Thomas Harris on Benson. She also wrote episodes of The Cosby Show and shared the Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series for The Golden Girls in 1987. She went on to become an executive producer of 90s shows The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, In the House, and The Steve Harvey Show, which she also co-created and wrote scripts for. Marguerite was played by decorated stage and screen actress Paula Kelly. Born in Jacksonville, Florida and raised in New York, Kelly attended Juilliard and started out as a choreographer. In 1964, she made her Broadway debut in the musical Something More, and later also starred in stage productions of The Dozens and Storytime and Ovid's Metamorphosis, both directed by Paul Sills. 
Kelly co-starred in a bunch of movies throughout the 70s, including Bob Fosse's Sweet Charity and sci-fi classics like Soylent Green and The Andromeda Strain. On TV, she did everything from comedies like Sanford and Son and Good Times to cop shows like Kojak and Policewoman to sketch showcases like The Richard Pryor Show. But it was as public defender Liz Williams on Night Court that many, including me, will remember her best. She did 13 episodes of the show in its first season, garnering an Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actress. After the Golden Girls, Kelly had a recurring role on Soap Santa Barbara, and a starring role on Oprah Winfrey's TV miniseries The Women of Brewster Place. She also did about half the episodes of short-lived drama South Central. Her last role, according to IMDb, was on drama Any Day Now in 1999. The Black Crow, as he's listed in the credits for The Housekeeper, who lands in the girls' lanai, was played by actor and stuntman Carl Ciarfalio, who's been working in the business since the late 70s. A prolific performer, Ciarfalio has over 280 combined acting and stunt work credits, working on big projects like Commando, The Hunt for Red October, Batman and Robin, Mission Impossible 3, and Taken 3. Action shows like Knight Rider, Sledgehammer, Quantum Leap, and Without a Trace, and things you didn't even know had stunts like Murder, She Wrote, Bad Santa, Community, and uh, The Golden Girls. Of Sierra Falio's 125 acting credits, most are for playing cops, security guards, and thugs, and henchmen, but one that sticks out is from the ill-fated Roger Corman-produced 1994 version of The Fantastic Four. While Michael Bailey Smith played the normal human form of Ben Grimm, Sierra Falio played the mutated, ever-loving, blue-eyed thing who look more like a Ninja Turtle than the orange rock monster we've come to recognize. In addition to his on-camera work, Ciarfalio also served as the president of the Stuntman's Association of Motion Pictures, sat on the board of governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and helped establish the Emmy Award for Outstanding Stunt Coordination, which is now given out annually. He's still in demand at the age of 65, using his expertise as a stunt coordinator. The Black Crow was hoping to drop into the Orange Bowl, which is something the residents of South Florida did for over 70 years. Originally a public works project built during the Great Depression, it opened as Roddy Burdine Stadium in 1937, named for the founder of Burdine's department store and an early resident of Miami from right after the city was incorporated in the late 19th century. The first home team for the stadium was of course the University of Miami Hurricanes, who would play there from 1937 to 2007. The venue was renamed the Orange Bowl in 1959 to match the college football bowl game that had been played there every year since 1938. The stadium itself was renamed the Miami Orange Bowl to differentiate it from the game. In 1966, a new tenant moved into the Miami Orange Bowl, the AFL's Miami Dolphins, Florida's oldest professional sports team. Two men helped bring the team to life. Miami attorney Joe Robbie, who would eventually have a different stadium named after him, and actor-producer Danny Thomas, father of Golden Girls producer Tony Thomas. Also joining the Dolphins in the Orange Bowl that inaugural season was an actual real dolphin who lived in a tank in the stadium's east end. Flipper would dive and jump when the team scored touchdowns, but by the 70s, excessive stress, probably due to being surrounded by 80,000 somewhat screaming fans every week, caused his handlers to remove him and the tank from the stadium. The AFL merged with the NFL in 1970. The Dolphins played at the Orange Bowl until 1987, when they moved into nearby Joe Robbie Stadium, 
now known as Hard Rock Stadium. Five Super Bowls were played at the Orange Bowl, including Super Bowls two and three. The Steelers won two championships there, while the Cowboys lost Super Bowls five, 10, and 13. The stadium also hosted soccer in the 1996 Summer Olympics, boxing, wrestling matches, and a speech during the Cuban Missile Crisis from President Kennedy. Of the many TV shows and movies that have filmed there, the most memorable was probably Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which brought back the dolphin tank as a plot device. Laces out! In 2008, the Orange Bowl was demolished to make room for Marlins Park, the new home of baseball's Miami Marlins. Lots of folks weren't happy about the demolition, and there were protests and tributes and lots of tears shed. Marlins Park has a number of tributes to the Orange Bowl, including benches made from original Orange Bowl seats, documents about the old place, and an art installation recreating the iconic letters that spelled out Miami Orange Bowl across the back of the West End Zone. Miami lost something when it lost the Orange Bowl, and lots of people will tell you that. It was the communal meeting place for the city's multinational residents for over 70 years. Entire generations dating back to the Depression grew up there and probably still miss it. Like a lot of old stadiums, it didn't look like much. Bare steel girders, faded colors, seating sections tacked on to accommodate more and more spectators, and backless seats that must have been very uncomfortable. But for sports fans of South Florida, the Orange Bowl will always be their mecca. The Orange Bowl game predates the stadium by two years, having been played at the Miami Gardens from 1935 to 37. The game became the first college bowl game to be televised live in primetime in 1964. The game itself also came up on the Golden Girls once as a benchmark for Blanche's relationship status. Season 7's Dateline Miami was written by Mark Cherry and Jamie Wooten and directed by Peter D. Bate. It's another wraparound episode with a bunch of separate vignettes, this time centered around the girls remembering relationships gone wrong. Blanche always wants to start the year off on the right foot, and while Rose wants to have a quiet New Year's Eve, Blanche has set them up on a double date. For her own good, of course. Besides, it's bad luck if you don't get kissed at midnight. Why, my New Year's Eve kiss is the most important one of the whole year. It sets the tone for the next 365 days. <laughs> one year, I didn't get kissed at midnight on New Year's Eve. I didn't get lucky till after the Orange Bowl. <laughs> the Orange Bowl was played on either the 1st or 2nd of January every year from 1938 to 1996, when it was played on New Year's Eve. The last few years, it's been played in December. The latest it was ever played was January 5th in 2010, which probably would have seemed like an eternity for Blanche. Let's switch from football to baseball. In season one's The Truth Will Out, alternately titled The Will, Rose's daughter Kirsten drops by to go over Charlie's will. Blanche then thinks about what she would include in her final testament. Boy, I'd love to put some surprises in my will. Like leaving a small remembrance to each of the men who has brought some special joy or pleasure to my life. Uh, where would they read that will, Blanche? The Astrodome? Truth Will Out was the first time we meet Kirsten, who would only appear one more time in the show's second-to-last episode, where she would be played by a different actress. The first Kirsten was played by Christine Belford, 
who might be familiar to 90s teen soap opera watchers as Steve Sanders' mom, Samantha, on the original Beverly Hills 90210. Belfort started on TV in the early 70s on dramas like Marcus Welby, M.D., Ironside, Mannix, and on Wonder Woman, where she played Baroness Von Gunther, the only one of Wonder Woman's comic book villains to make it onto the series. In the 80s, she appeared on multiple episodes of Dynasty, Silver Spoons, and Outlaws, as well as 90210. In Kirsten's final appearance, the character was played by actress Lee Garlington, who Seinfeld fanatics will remember as the coffee shop waitress Claire in the show's experimental pre-pilot episode, Good News, Bad News. The Astrodome was nicknamed the eighth wonder of the world by recently deceased evangelist Billy Graham, and was both years ahead of its time and a dated relic from the past from the minute it was completed. The story goes that Judge Roy Huffhines and his daughter frequented Houston Buffalo's minor league baseball games in the late 1950s. One night after another rained out game, the daughter asked her father, who at the time was the mayor of Houston, why they couldn't play baseball indoors. That simple question led Hoffheinz on a quest to not only get Houston a major league team, but also build the first ever domed stadium. The idea for a domed stadium wasn't new exactly. We talked in episode two of this podcast about Walter O'Malley's plan to build a Dodger dome for his team in Brooklyn before he decided to decamp for Los Angeles. But the Astrodome, which was completed in 1965, was the world's largest indoor stadium at the time. Hoffheinz was able to raise $31 million in public funds and convince Major League Baseball to expand to Texas in 1962. The team was originally called the Colt 45s, and the stadium was to be called the Harris County Dome. The Colts played their games at next-door Colt Stadium for three seasons before the dome was done. In April of 1965, the newly renamed Houston Astros played their first game at the Astrodome an exhibition contest against the New York Yankees. Two years later, the Astros were joined in the Dome by the Houston Oilers of the AFL, who had played at the University of Houston and Rice University in the preceding years. The Oilers were the first football team to play their games in a domed stadium, and played there until 1996 when they relocated to Tennessee and became the Titans. Another Astro-branded item would appear in later years. The dome itself was 18 stories above the playing field and made of clear lucite panels that were to allow in sunlight to let natural grass grow on the field. Unfortunately, they also let the sun right into the eyes of Astro's outfielders. And after enough complaints, the panes were painted over. With that, grass couldn't grow and it had to be replaced by artificial grass, later dubbed, you guessed it, AstroTurf. The Astros played at the Astrodome until 2000, when they moved into the undomed Minute Maid Park. They just won the franchise's first World Series this past season, so the Astrodome never saw them win a championship. But it did see concerts by Elvis Presley, stunts by Evil Knievel, fights featuring Muhammad Ali, and the legendary battle of the sexes between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. Country singer George Strait drew 68,000 people there, the most ever for the Dome. Unlike the Miami Orange Bowl, the Astrodome hasn't been demolished. It still stands where it always did, and no one's exactly sure what to do with it. Some want to raise it to the ground and replace it with something useful. Some want to renovate it into a hotel or an indoor amusement park, maybe with ski slopes. Some want to just keep it because of its historical significance. 
It was designated as one of America's most endangered historic places in 2013, and one plan involves tearing down the existing structure and replacing it with a smaller version that would be the Houston Astrodome Hall of Fame. It's a good thing it wasn't demolished, though. In 2005, the Astrodome was used as a temporary shelter for people displaced from their homes by Hurricane Katrina. In 2015, writer Jeff McGregor described the Astrodome in Smithsonian Magazine as, quote, It was the past's vision of the future, the greatest dome ever conceived, a climate-controlled wonderland of science and cutting-edge engineering, the biggest indoor space ever made by man, an immense decorated cylinder with a flying saucer roofline. Half a mile around, it was as big as Houston's dreams for itself and as big as the idea of Texas. End quote. Both the Miami Orange Bowl and Astrodome hosted big-name boxing matches. But one of boxing's iconic venues was mentioned on another Golden Girls Wraparound episode. Golden Moments was a two-part clip show that aired in Season 3 as the 69th and 70th episodes of the series up to that point. The script was credited to Mort Nathan and Barry Finero, and the story to Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman. Sophia announces at the beginning that she's leaving Miami to move in with her son Phil, whose wife just left him. It's just an excuse to recount some jokes from the preceding 68 episodes with a little connective tissue, like this line. Ma, how do you expect to live together in the same house? You haven't even gotten there yet, and already you're fighting with him. What? This is little house on the prairie? We're at each other's throats all the time. There are more fights here than at Caesar's Palace. For a very long time, the center of the boxing universe was New York's Madison Square Garden. But starting in 1969, Las Vegas has taken the belt thanks in large part to Caesar's Palace. The opulent hotel was the brainchild of hotelier Jay Sarno, who, while stopping over in Vegas in the early 60s, was disappointed at how small and nondescript the hotels on the Strip were. So he created a palace fit for Caesar, literally. Togas for waitresses, stationery on parchment paper, rooms decorated in phony Roman trappings. It was Sarno who decided that the name Caesar's should not have an apostrophe, so that it didn't seem to belong to one person, and that everyone in it should feel like an emperor. The first big-time sports event at Caesars Palace was held in 1967, when Evil Knievel jumped over the hotel's giant fountain. The daredevil ended up with a broken hip after wiping out. But President and COO Harry Wald thought that sports were the future, and began arranging more spectacles. Boxing quickly became their go-to goldmine and some of the sport's biggest matches were held at Caesars Outdoor Sports Pavilion. Just a few of the legendary matches held there were a 15-round slugfest between Larry Holmes and Ken Norton in 1978, Sugar Ray Leonard's comeback against Tommy Hitman Hearns in 1981, Leonard's controversial bout against Marvelous Marvin Hagler in 1987 after an almost three-year layoff, and 1985's Hagler-Hearns Middleweight Championship, named by many as the greatest three-round boxing match ever held. A 1993 heavyweight title match between Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield was interrupted by something we're going to talk about in a little bit. Holyfield's first fight against Mike Tyson took place at Caesars Palace in 1996. The arena also hosted a match between a near-retirement Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes in 1980, the funeral for champ Joe Lewis in 1981, WrestleMania 9, and the opening match shot for Rocky III. A fight between Ray Boom Boom Mancini and Korean Duk Koo Kim ended with Kim in a coma, and he passed away just four days later, 
spurring boxing organizers to change rules to prevent later tragedies. Caesars took a break from boxing after Oscar De La Hoya's victory over Julio Cesar Chavez in 1996 and didn't host another match until 2004 at its new Roman Plaza Amphitheater. Caesars seems content to mostly stick with musical entertainment these days, thanks to its resident superstar Celine Dion. But boxing could always come back in the future. I think Celine Dion can hold her own for 10 rounds. Our last venue is a bit of a cheat. The venue itself is a sports legend, but the Golden Girls joke that references it isn't really about sports, but that's okay. In Season 7's The Commitments, written by Tracy Gamble and Richard Vaxey, Dorothy does the unthinkable. She asks Blanche to take a date off her hands because she has someplace else to go. That someplace is Strawberry Fields. I just want a ticket on the radio to a dinner theater. Beatlemania. Shut up, Ma. Beatlemania? You're giving up a date for Beatlemania? Oh, Rose, the Beatles were the first and only rock and roll group that I ever really loved. When they came to Shea Stadium, I managed to get a ticket, but one of my kids came down with the flu. It was one of those times when you have to pretend that you love your kids more than something you really want to do. Anyway, I've always regretted missing out on that one night of history. Oh, Blanche, I never got to see them. And the closest I'll ever get is Beatlemania. It's not really the Beatles, but it's an incredible simulation. But Dorothy doesn't just go see Beatlemania. She takes one of the faux Beatles home and begins a magical mystery tour of her own that starts out with all my loving and ends with a ticket to ride someplace else. Don, the uh, musician Dorothy hooks up with, was played by actor Terry Kaiser, who will forever be known as the titular charismatic corpse in not one but two Weekend at Bernie's movies. The Nebraska-born Kaiser came to New York in 1963 to study with legendary teacher Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. Kaiser absorbed Strasberg's notes on method acting, but not for drama. Kaiser always wanted to do comedy, and Strasberg, who helped shape the careers of Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, and a raft of others, wasn't exactly supportive of the idea. It took another three years and a scene from a Tennessee Williams play before Kaiser was finally accepted into the Actors Studio's lifetime circle. Kaiser did 51 episodes of soap opera The Doctors starting in 1967. From there, it was on to every cop show and comedy on TV, including Beretta, The Bionic Woman, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Maude. He flip-flopped between movies and TV throughout the 80s and 90s, appearing in Kenny Rogers' Six Pack, Friday the 13th Part 7, and Mannequin 2 on the move, in addition to shows like Manimal, Hill Street Blues, The Fall Guy, and Night Court. Dedicated Golden Girls viewers will remember Kaiser from an episode prior to the commitment. In Season 2's Twas the Nightmare Before Christmas, written by Barry Fanaro and Mort Nathan, Kaiser plays the deranged Santa Claus who holds up Rose's grief counseling center and temporarily takes the girls hostage. I guess that means he didn't make it into the men of Blanche's boudoir calendar. But it was in 1989 and 1993 that Kaiser played deceased insurance executive Bernie Lomax, who's propped up by two knuckleheads for an entire weekend, twice, for reasons that don't deserve to be disseminated. But like all acting, there's an art to playing dead, or as Kaiser puts it, playing funny dead. Quote, Playing dead is like our song and dance. 
When I was playing Bernie, I saw the first set of dailies and realized I wasn't being funny. I was just being dead. I was carrying a comedy and I wasn't funny. So I went back to Basics 101 and said, what if this guy was alive? What is he doing in this scene? What's going on? What he's doing is goofing on his fellow players. End quote. So Kaiser added a smirk to Bernie's rigor mortis face and threw his body around in ways that allowed him to become more of a participant in his own movie. A funny thing about being famous for playing a dead guy is that people think you're actually dead. But Terry Kaiser is very much alive and still working. When he's not teaching acting or performing on stage, he could be seen in web series like Bailout and Johnny Dynamo. Pretty good for a corpse. Shea Stadium, of course, did host the Beatles in two monumental concerts in the mid-60s. The idea of concert promoter Sid Bernstein, who had booked the band into New York's Carnegie Hall the year before. The Beatles' August 15, 1965 concert at Shea is considered one of the most important shows in rock history. The band arrived in Queens via helicopter that landed at the World's Fair site, then took an armored car to Shea. They changed in the umpire's room and came out of the visitor's dugout to 55,000 screaming, insane young people who had been waiting breathlessly. It was the first major outdoor concert in America, has been cited endlessly as a cultural touchstone, was the subject of a documentary which itself has been the subject of fan fascination, and yet the whole show only lasted a little over 30 minutes. According to Bernstein, John Lennon told him years later that their performance at Shea was, quote, the top of the mountain. The concert was such a phenomenon that the Beatles returned a little over a year later, playing a second show at Shea Stadium on August 23, 1966. Shea Stadium was named after influential New York lawyer Bill Shea, who worked for four years to bring National League Baseball back to the city after the California defections of the Giants and Dodgers. The plot of land that would house the stadium was once offered to Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley, who would rather his Brooklyn-based team play 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles rather than 30 miles away in Queens. Shea's original idea was to create a third major league to compete with the American and National Leagues. Major League Baseball wasn't keen on the competition, so five years after O'Malley moved west and convinced Giants owner Horace Stoneham to do the same by moving his club to San Francisco, the National League announced the addition of the expansion New York Mets, whose team colors would be a combination of Dodger Blue and Giants Orange. With the help of the even more influential Robert Moses, the construction of what would have been Flushing Meadows Stadium began on October 28, 1961. A year later, somebody, either civic leader Bernard Gimbel or Mayor Robert F. Wagner, campaigned to have the place named after Shea, without whom the stadium or the team that played in it wouldn't exist. The Mets played their first two seasons in Manhattan's Polo Grounds, the home of the old New York Giants. Sod was still being laid in the outfield as the Mets and Pittsburgh Pirates took batting practice before the first official game at Shea Stadium a 4-3 loss to the Bucks on April 17, 1964. Shea would become a go-to hangout for people from Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island for decades, and a few of its iconic elements were added after its grand opening. The top hat with the Big Apple that rose out of it whenever a Met hit a home run was first installed in 1981, and between 1985 and 1987, new blue panels were placed around the stadium that also contained cool neon outlines of baseball players. The Mets won both of their World Series at Shea in 1969 and 1986. We'll talk about that second one again a little bit. 
also moving into Shea when it opened in 1964 were the AFL's New York Jets, who had played at the Polo Grounds as the New York Titans from 1960 to 1962. Rechristened the Jets one year before their move to Shea, the team wasn't very good when they first arrived, but they did beat the Denver Broncos in their first game as Queens residents. Four years later, on December 29, 1968, the Jets beat the Oakland Raiders 27-23 to earn their still only trip to the Super Bowl. We talked all about that victory over the Colts in Super Bowl III in Episode 1 of Season 2 of this podcast. In 1975, as renovations were going on at Yankee Stadium, Shea became the home of the Mets, Jets, Yankees, and New York football giants. How they pulled that off, I have no idea. But a book entitled When Shea Was Home, the story of the 1975 Mets, Yankees, Giants, and Jets was released in 2016. I should pick that up. A year after that crazy 1975 season, the Giants moved into their new permanent home, Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. In 1984, with an expired lease and citing scheduling issues with Mets playoff games, the Jets decided to join their football brothers across the river. Both the Jets and Giants still share a home together, only it's the pretty new MetLife Stadium, also in East Rutherford. After 45 years of serving millions of people for dozens of different events, including a visit from Pope John Paul II in 1979, Shea Stadium was in need of a replacement. In 2009, the Mets moved into brand new City Field. The facade looks like Ebbets Field, and the green seats are reminiscent of the polo grounds, but it's definitely all about the Mets including having a new home-run apple in center field that's four times larger than the apple in Shea Stadium. That apple sits out front of City Field, and you can walk right past it as you come off the subway station. It's pretty cool. Let's go back to the housekeeper and the birdman that lands in the girl's lanai. He may have missed the Orange Bowl, but the idea of a man parachuting into a sports venue was based on some real occurrences. Two of the most famous instances happened in places we've talked about here. During the first inning of Game 6 of the 1986 World Series between the Mets and Boston Red Sox, Mike Sergio parachuted into Shea Stadium, trailing behind him a banner reading Let's Go Mets. Cops quickly removed him from the field, and Sergio ended up watching the Mets' incredible ninth-inning comeback and Mookie Wilson's hit getting by Bill Buckner from a jail cell. The next day, he was released by a judge who claimed to be a Mets season ticket holder and was free to watch Game 7 on his own. Initially, Sergio was sentenced to community service and issued a $500 fine after pleading guilty to criminal trespassing. Sergio did spend a few months in jail on a later contempt charge when he refused to name the pilot who broke a number of aviation laws to fly him over Shea in the first place. But Sergio isn't a career criminal. He's an actor, producer, and director who went on to play Sergeant Abruzzi in the 1990s educational show MathNet and won an Emmy for his directing work. A football or a baseball stadium is a pretty big landing spot. But what about a boxing Well, somebody tried that too, and at Caesars Palace. During the seventh round of Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield's rematch on November 6, 1993, James Miller attempted to parachute into the ring, and this time, it wasn't a banner he was carrying. Strapped to Miller's body was an enormous enclosed fan. But whatever propulsion it was supposed to provide, it didn't. And the fan man, as he was dubbed, got caught in the ring's overhead lighting ring, crashed into the ropes, and landed in the crowd. The scene was chaos. The fight was stopped for about 20 minutes while security staff worked to remove Miller from the first few rows. 
Some of the people sitting in those rows worked for Bo's team and started throwing punches at the parachutist, knocking him unconscious. Miller himself said later, it was a heavyweight fight and I was the only guy who got knocked out. Holyfield went on to win a split decision and regain his heavyweight title. The fan man won 10 days in jail and a $4,000 fine. A year later, he attempted to paraglide into a Broncos-Raiders game at the L.A. Coliseum on Monday Night Football, but he landed in a nearby park and was arrested. Not content with interrupting American sporting events, he spent a week in a British prison and was deported after skydiving into an FA Cup soccer match in Bolton, England. Unfortunately, the fan man's story has a tragic ending. James Miller eventually moved to Alaska to live a reclusive lifestyle and hung himself in a remote trail in a place authorities said his body was unlikely to be found for years, if ever. It's incredibly sad and ironic that a person responsible for one of the most outrageous and memorable moments in sports history chose to end his life in such a way that he would be totally forgotten. The Orange Bowl, Shea Stadium, and Astrodome had home tenants, and Caesars Palace was a neutral site. Where a game takes place can make a big difference, and the Golden Girls knew it. In season four's Little Sister, written by Christopher Lloyd, Rose's sister Holly shows up and thinks she can play with Sophia. Spoiler, she can't. Who's this? Holly, this is... Oh, wait now, Rose, let me. She's feisty, zesty, and full of old world charms, Sophia. She's mopey, dopey, and full of crap, Rose's sister. (laughs) Don't mess with me, kid, I have a home court advantage. Holly, whom Rose has never liked because she's a liar, a man-stealer, and just not very much fun to be around, was played by Inga Svensson. The Nebraska-born actress is still known to most of America from another Wit Thomas Harris production, Benson, where she played Robert Guillaume's arch-nemesis, Miss Gretchen Krauss. Long before she played the no-nonsense German chef for the governor of an unnamed state, Swenson got her start on anthology series like Goodyear Playhouse, The United States Steel Hour, and DuPont Show of the Month throughout the late 50s. In 1962, she co-starred as Helen Keller's mother, Kate, in Arthur Penn's Oscar-nominated film version of The Miracle Worker. Then it was on to more anthologies and the usual 70s dramas like The Rookies, Barnaby Jones, and Vegas before she joined Wit Thomas Harris on Soap, where she played a once-exiled, now-back-and-angry baby mama named Ingrid Swenson. Her last regular gig was on early 90s sitcom Dr. Doctor. After seeing her specialize in Europeans of different stripes for basically my entire childhood, I was shocked to learn that Swenson is from Nebraska. But hey, if you're good at something, you stick with it. There's a short video about the Orange Bowl that I watched as research for this. It had a few people, Jimmy Johnson and Don Shula among them, reminiscing about the place right before it was finally demolished. Everybody was very wistful and sad about the loss, and I found myself oddly empathetic to their feelings. The Islanders moved from Nassau Coliseum a few years ago to play at Brooklyn's Barclays Center. It's a really long story that I've spilled thousands of words about at Lighthouse Hockey and elsewhere. Frankly, the Coliseum should have been torn down and replaced a long time ago. Instead, it was renovated and the Islanders are going to play some games there while they have a new arena built at Belmont Park. But what spoke to me about the Orange Bowl video was how everyone in it talked about how much it meant to Miami and the South Florida community. Football games were only one type of event to see there. If you lived there or grew up there, you went to the Orange Bowl for pretty much everything, just like you used to do at Nassau Coliseum if you grew up on Long Island. It reminded me of my youth and all the times we went there and how integral it was to the entire community. 
But time marches on and you can't live in the past forever. They can take away steel and wood and grass or ice, but not the memories that you will always have or the emotions that they can make you feel. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we finish up our third season by drafting a roster of boyfriends, boyfriends, and more boyfriends. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.